standing for the reading of scripture this morning, which we'll find in the Gospel of St. Luke chapter 10. Uh, I've mentioned to you that we took a break from uh, the Gospel of St. Mark, which we were returned to. I uh, actually had intended that this would be uh, the last uh, message in this short series, but after studying more, we're going to return to Luke 19 uh, for one last sermon on uh, the kingdom of God and gospel good works. Uh, so that'll be coming up in a couple of weeks, and then we'll go back to the Gospel of St. Mark. But beginning this morning, the reading of Scripture in the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 10, verse 25 and following, let us attend and hear to the Word of God. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion." So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said to him, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, let me remind you again that those terms are used interchangeably. They refer to the same thing. The kingdom of God is the main theme of the New Covenant Gospel. But wait a minute, Pastor. I I thought salvation was the main theme of the gospel, or I thought love was the main theme of the gospel. Well, you need to understand that salvation and love are defined by the kingdom of God. It's not what you or I think that love or salvation is. It's what God has revealed as he is king, what he has revealed love and salvation to be, among other things. Now, two well-known stories from the life and teaching of Jesus are about the Good Samaritan, the passage which we just read, and also the rich young ruler, which we'll uh, also turn to this morning. In Luke's gospel account, these two stories are found in chapter 10 and chapter 18, respectively. And between those two chapters, the kingdom of God is referenced 16 times. And I mentioned to you we're going to go on to chapter 19 of the gospel of Luke. And I'll just challenge you, read chapter 19 and see what you think it says about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven? Well, this question has been disputed since the days of Jesus and the apostles. But there is sufficient scripture revelation and teaching to essentially answer with assurance. Although we cannot answer exhaustively because it is so magnificent. Now, one of the common missteps 
in discussing and wanting to define and identify the uh, kingdom of God is to start with the end, eschatology. In uh, reviewing and, and uh, listening to some various discussions and, and things uh, lately, I find this is one of the places that uh, is often gone by way of beginning the discussion. I think that's a misstep. I, that's a topic for another time, but I do think that's a misstep. And, and in my opinion, the place to start for wanting to know about the kingdom of God to define and identify it is with the doctrine of the church. I don't think that comes as a surprise to you, but I do want to state that again and, and to get our focus that way. Now, another commonly accepted view, and this is perhaps the majority view uh, assumed among the, the uh, theologically reformed community, is that the kingdom of God consists of spheres of God's sovereignty over his creation. And so the model is often presented of like a wagon wheel or a bicycle wheel where the, the kingdom, the king, the throne of God, God's power and sovereignty is the center hub. And then radiate, radiating out from that throne are the spheres, like the spokes. They're the spheres over which God has sovereignty and identifies uh, various things in terms of his sovereignty over life. Um, I don't embrace that model. Uh, in this model, the church is one sphere among many concerning the kingdom of God. So it's not a model that I think really is um, sufficiently answering what Scripture says. Although in current discussions, sphere sovereignty is being reassessed and challenged by a revival and a recapitulation of two kingdoms, two kingdom theology. Maybe you've heard that. That's a, a current uh, topic and discussion that's going on. And from the discussions I've listened to, it seems like generally there is a reference to uh, commonly among those who even have disagreements, there is a, a reference to uh, um, Augustine's City of God and City of Man. Now lately I've been preaching about the kingdom of God in the context of what I've tried to present to you as a twofold crown or kingship, two administrations or, dim, uh, or stewardships of God as the universal sovereign, the triune creator God, and as the mediatorial rule by the messianic office of the glorified Jesus Christ as king of the church. Not as two separate kingdoms, but as overlapping in one, uh, one all, almighty God and king, but in twofold crown or two administrations, I guess, is the best way I can do. Two, two stewardships of his being king. And by this view, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace are related to the scripture's applications of the moral law. This is what I think is so very important. And I'll try to elaborate a little bit on that. But in this particular view uh, regarding the twofold crown of God as universal creator sovereign and as Jesus as mediatorial king of his church, we find that the covenant of works and the covenant of grace are related by scriptures and its application to the moral law of God. And I hope we'll see that this morning uh, in a good way. So there's biblical warrant for this understanding of the kingdom of God, which Jesus preached and inaugurated through the new covenant gospel. It's defined and identified by the doctrine of the church. And I know it's somewhat simple, and I hope I never outgrow it, this little catechism of what is Jesus the bridegroom, of what is Jesus the head, of what is Jesus the king. And when we respond to that, that it's the church, it should open the door to us of greater and greater wonder of what is this church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so I ask you, is this only an academic, intellectual, and doctrinal debate removed from the practical concerns of the Christian believer's life of faith? Well, I don't think so at all. The questions arising from the views and understandings about the kingdom of God directly relate to what gospel expectations we as Christian believers have as we live in this sin-fallen world. What kind of expectations do you have? Do you know those expectations of the gospel are often sort of fed to you? There are many people that have, going back to eschatology, have many expectations that I don't believe are warranted from Scripture because of what they've been taught. And it taught particularly about a view of the kingdom of God. And so I think this is a most practical question. Um, The general most encompassing category of, of issues relates to Christian participation in this secular culture. What are we doing here? How do we relate? Do we have any place or any purpose in terms of these questions that are all around us and that are debated and disputed and displayed before us every day, day in and day out, oftentimes very in a very lopsided way through the media? Do you ever ask yourself a question? How am I as a Christian to think about this? are to act in view of this, either individually as a believer or collectively as the church. And so the question comes, I mean, one, one question is evangelism, or we usually, usually want to associate that with the gospel in terms of bearing witness to Christ and his salvation. Is it mutually exclusive of politics, of economics, of education, of poverty, of medical ethics, of law enforcement, of social mores? of arts and entertainment, of environmental conservation, of food production. I mean, the list goes on and on because you and I live in this world. That's why the list goes on and on. These are things that contact and meet us every day. We don't live in isolation. We don't live in a hole in the ground. We don't live in a bubble. And it's by God's purpose that we don't. So how do we as Christian believers individually or even collectively as the church, how do we interact with the secular culture of this fallen sinful world in which we live? So I want to follow up with um, this morning's message, the kingdom of God, social good works is not the new covenant gospel. As we look at the parable of the Good Samaritan and the perplexity with the rich young ruler. Now, I don't think that I'm having to argue this particular point um, intensely with you. I, I know you know that social good works is not the gospel, the, the new covenant gospel of Christ. You know that. But I'm wanting you to think, I'm wanting us to lay a good foundation to think through and to have a good place by which we can go further in considering these matters. So have you ever thought in this parable of the Good Samaritan that we read this morning in Luke chapter 10, have you ever thought that this famous parable of Jesus is not named the parable of the good Christian? We know it as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now I think very properly it could be named the parable of the good neighbor, I'll have more to say about that. But I do want you to think about this. This is not a trick kind of question. I'm not trying to set you up for something. I'm trying to say we, we do not refer to this parable as the parable of the good Christian. Although it seems that that's how people want to often interpret it. So Jesus' purpose in this parable is not that good work summarized by the second table of the law. Because that's what's referenced here. That good works summarized by the second table of the law, even identifying social good, are a way of salvation. 
of eternal life? That's the question that's put before Jesus about eternal life. But you see, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan to just the opposite purpose. That if individual or social good works are imperfect here on earth, then human conscience cannot escape eternal accountability to God, the Creator God, by the first table of the law, that is, to love God supremely and perfectly without ever failing in thought, in word, or deed. In other words, if human relationships, if in our human relationships no one is sinless, then no one is sinless in relationship to God's absolute holiness. And what we have here before us is a logical model of reasoning from the lesser to the greater. That's used often in Scripture. And it's used with good purpose and intent. You know what James said? With our tongue, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. This ought not be. This ain't right. And then John writes very directly, if anyone says, I love God, first table of the law, and hates his brother, second table of the law, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. That's why I'm saying this is important and direct to us in Jesus' purpose and intent in telling the story of the Good Samaritan. Now you just might remember that James and John were disciples and apostles personally taught by Jesus and witnessing all his public ministry. You see, James and John were here when Jesus had this encounter with the uh, law expert. So this Jewish law expert stood up tempting Jesus. Now, I want you to note the scriptures here. I want you to pay attention to what it says in terms of his standing up and tempting Jesus. Uh, We need to recognize this was a public gesture of an adversarial contest. So don't think this was just a, a nice collegiate debate. That's not what was going on here. This is a public gesture of an adversarial contest. And then the entrapping question is legally and theologically flawed. Did you think about that? When this law expert comes up and he tries to entrap Jesus by saying, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? That is a legal and theologically flawed question because inheritance by definition is not received by working or earning. What's interesting is this also begs the question concerning the morality of partiality which Paul and James as well as other scriptures also engage. So I want you to see these things. The big question It's not about earthly inheritance, obviously, but about eternal life. What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And the acknowledged source between Jesus and this law expert is the Scripture revelation of the law of God. Eternal life only comes from Creator God, His way. And so there's common ground as this law expert answers Jesus about the first and and second summary of of the law, the first and second table in the summary of the law. And Jesus agrees with him that he said this rightly. He summarized it in such a way that uh, they agree, but here is something we mustn't lose sight of. By agreeing on this summary of the first and second table of the law, to love God supremely and to love one's neighbor as yourself, this also establishes the comprehensive scope for moral accountability of all humanity. 
You see, that's where I think Jesus is going with this. By agreeing on the summary that is encompassing of the first and second table of the law, to love God supremely and to love one's neighbor as yourself. When Jesus is saying to this law expert, you answered rightly, do you understand what you said? That this establishes the comprehensive scope for all moral accountability to all humanity. Everyone is accountable to God on God's terms and by what God has revealed. So Jesus turned the tables on this Jewish law expert. And he realized that, that, that Jesus had turned the tables on him because he wanted to justify himself, then follows up with this question. See, the question had been, what must I do to, to inherit eternal life? As we already pointed out, it was flawed. And then Jesus speaks to him and they find common ground agreement about the, the scriptures and what the scriptures reveal regarding the first and second table of the law. And this law expert, now knowing that he has been uh, challenged by Jesus, tries to turn the tables on Jesus and tries to outsmart Jesus. And so in his self-righteous defense, and do not miss that, wanting to justify himself. In his defensiveness, he became so indignant with his self-righteousness that he presents Jesus with this conundrum that was well known at the time. It was a, a confusing and difficult question that was making the rounds, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan as a good neighbor. And I want you to note these things. I, oftentimes we get tied down in the secondary details. But I want you to note the primary details here. So there's a, a, a fellow going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's jumped by thieves and beat up and, and stripped and stolen all his goods. And he's left for half dead. Okay, so that's the condition. But now Jesus says, by example, a priest and a Levite came by that way. Did you notice Jesus didn't say a Pharisee or a lawyer? So Jesus wasn't trying to shame this fellow and put him on the spot. Oh, I'll use an example. Well, a law expert came that way or a Pharisee came that way. No, Jesus uses the priest and the Levite to set up the contrast. The moral tension is increased by the personal and official expectations of priests and Levites revealed by the law of Moses. Now, of all people, a priest and a Levite would be thought to be compassionate. By design and by ordinance, the priest and the Levite were to be serving the people. They were to be um, mediators for the people. And you may not know this, but they were also served with a quasi-medical function. So of all people that could be named, a priest and a Levite would have had the greatest expectations of people, and particularly a law expert who knew the law of Moses, that this is among all people who would have been able and should have had compassion on someone who was in this condition, beat up and half dead, having been robbed and assaulted. But Jesus tells the story that they passed by, taking note. It wasn't like uh, they just missed a guy. He says they were culpable. They were morally culpable because they saw what had happened. They saw the condition of the guy and they passed on by. And then Jesus uses a Samaritan by example of a universal application of the second table of the moral law. What did this Samaritan do? He individually had compassion and he took upon him the responsibility of a, a social good in caring 
for this man. He showed social good work. This serves as a secondary witness to human inability to keep the first table of the moral law of God perfectly. I, I don't want you to miss this. I, honestly, I don't think it's really pointed out as it should. And that is, according to Jesus, Samaritan corruption of the first table of the law in worshiping God was a false religion without the true knowledge of salvation. You think about that when you hear the story of Jesus talking about the good Samaritan? Do you remember what Jesus said to the woman at Jacob's well? You don't know how to worship. Your worship is a false worship. You do not have the true knowledge of salvation. So Jesus is not affirming that this Samaritan is gaining eternal life by showing good works to this distressed man. Jesus is saying, look, the second table of the moral law of God, even in a Samaritan who shows kindness and compassion and extends himself in such ways of social good to this man, underscores that you cannot save yourself, no matter how good you may be, no matter what good works you may do. If you should give all your goods to feed the poor, if you should give your body to be burned on principle because you say that there's something wrong in the way people are living, but you do not have love of God first and supreme, it is worthless. That's an application of what the Apostle Paul says in the full scope of Scripture. And so I think we really need to see this story of the good Samaritan in the way in which Jesus intended it. He puts the question to the law expert and says from the basis of this story, who was neighbor to this man? And this law expert who wanted to justify himself in his defensiveness has to, whether begrudgingly or sincerely, answer the one who showed mercy. And Jesus commended him for that. Jesus complimented this law expert in terms of his moral sensibility. To what degree it was genuine or compassionate, I don't know. But Jesus goes on to challenge him then with the same kind of mercy. Go and do likewise. Have this same kind of mercy. What kind of mercy? He's saying to this law expert, reconsider how mercy triumphs over self-righteous judgment. That's what Jesus is saying that this law expert needs. You need to know. You need to understand. You need to embrace how mercy triumphs over self-righteous judgment. That's what James said. Remember I told you James was present. And I believe that James and the other apostles write very much about what they learned from Jesus and what they saw, the Holy Spirit guiding them. And so James writes to us and says that mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's what drives us to the throne of grace. That is what would drive this law expert to God's throne of grace. If we are imperfect in the second table of the law, to what greater degree are we guilty and imperfect to the first table of the law? And what is it we need? We need mercy, the mercy of God. We need the mercy of God driving us to the throne of grace, the mercy of God that triumphs over judgment. How God is just and the justifier of sinners. That's what the story of the Good Samaritan is about. It's not about social good works. 
It's about the need for mercy triumphing over law and judgment. So the parable of the Good Samaritan, the good neighbor, is not a mandate from Christ for social good works beyond the often repeated New Testament scriptures applying the ethical injunctions of the second table of the moral law. Uh, That's one of the things we'll look at next week over and over again. We have the second table of the moral law presented in terms of ethical injunctions, and it's in the context of accountability to the triune God creator. One of two ways that the second table of the moral law of God is presented to us to underscore for us accountability to God. If we are imperfect and if we are not sinless in relationships with humans, where do we think we stand before a holy God? But then there's another uh, direction and application of Scripture regarding the second table of the moral law that's also used, and that is in reference to the transforming grace of God in Christ by which redeemed sinners are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God, into the kingdom of light, of God's dear Son, in which the second table of the moral law now becomes not an indictment against us, not a a, a secondary table in reference to the first table, but it is a demonstration of the grace of God working in us in terms of the covenant of grace. We're not bound to the covenant of works. We've been freed from the condemnation of the first and second table of the law in terms of the covenant of works. We've been established in the grace of God in Christ. And by the power working in us, we are able to do good things that approve and and please God that he identifies in application from the Holy Scriptures that we as Christians should be doing identified by the second table of the law. He elaborates on them even further. That's what's pretty exciting when we start looking at Scripture and we see how in context one of these two applications is presented to us. And I think that that's the thing that we need to see and we really need to focus on and um, look more and more to be taught by Scripture how this is glorifying to God in terms of our changed relationship to the law of God and how that works its way out in, in, in God's sanctifying purpose that we not only are transferred into the kingdom of light of God's dear Son, but we are armored with light and we're light bearers of the gospel. And that does uh, uh, connect with how we live as Christian believers individually and collectively as the church in this secular culture. Now, I told you that if you'll turn over to chapter 18 of uh, Luke, there's a connection between chapter 10 and the, the encounter that Jesus had with the law expert that led to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus' encounter with the uh, rich young ruler, we call him the rich young ruler in Scripture, he's just referred to us, to, to us as the rich ruler. Um, and that connection is that the same question is put to Jesus. But it's also the same flawed question. And Jesus again cites the second table of the moral law. I I want you to see these connections in uh, Luke chapter 18. And you're perhaps familiar with this scripture. Um, I won't go through and read it all again. Uh, It begins in uh, verse 18 uh, when uh, 
a certain ruler asked Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, it's the same flawed question. One doesn't inherit by doing. But note how Jesus answers to him. He answers him with references from the second table of the law. First of all, he presents the paradox of why do you call me good? No one is good but God. He's the only one that's good. And then verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I have kept for my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And then the balance of this is also important down to verse 30, which we'll reference in a moment. But just for now, this is the same question that was put to Jesus. It's a legal and theologically flawed question. You don't inherit by doing. Uh, the rich ruler initiates this conversation with Jesus by a philosophical and theological paradox. Goodness is sourced in God. Only God is essentially and independently good, and Jesus is only good if he is God. Now that sets up something of a deeper reality that's very important for us to notice here, and that is that Jesus embodies the first table of the moral law. Both in essence, he is God, and by incarnation. He is only mediator between God and humans, the perfect revealer of God the Father to all humanity. So this rich ruler who comes to Jesus, and you'll note, he falls in other references, he falls at Jesus' feet. Other than standing up in adversary to him, he falls at Jesus' feet in tribute and recognition. And he calls him good, and Jesus identifies this question, this, this concern, this concept of good, and says, only God is good. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. You need to get this straight. If Jesus is not God, he is not good. If he is good, and he is God as he claims, then he is essentially and independently good, and he reveals to us the goodness of God as the incarnate God himself. And once again, Jesus uses the second table of the moral law when he goes through the list and says, you know the commandments. And the, the ruler, seemingly with some sense of, of sincerity, says, I've kept these. I've tried to do my best. And Jesus says, well, you, you lack one thing yet. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. So is Jesus saying to him that you can buy your salvation? If you just go sell everything you have and come and follow me, that'll buy your way into heaven. That's the way it's often read. That's not what Jesus is saying at all, I hope we know. What Jesus is saying is, oh, here's the 10th commandment, by the way, covetousness. Where your treasure is is where your heart will be. He was sorrowful because he had great possessions. He was very wealthy. And Jesus spoke to the treasure of his heart. That's where your treasure is. No matter how sincere you are, here's where it really strikes you. So Jesus uses the second table of the moral law, applying the 10th commandment as the coup de grace to the rich ruler's conscience. And I want you to understand this. Jesus is not using the moral law as directives for social justice, as is sometimes just... Uh, sort of cherry-picked out of this passage and says, oh, see, you're supposed to go and sell everything and give to the poor. The utmost concern is about the social care for the poor. That's not what this is about. 
Jesus is not using the moral law as directives for social justice, but to reveal sin in the heart, where your treasure is. That's where your heart will be. Do you remember, again, with the balance of Scripture, that others had done what Jesus was teaching here in response to the transforming grace of God? Do you remember Matthew, the tax collector, that Jesus called as a disciple and apostle? That he was a very wealthy man? And that he gave a banquet, spending all he had to invite those whom he knew as his friends, the publicans and sinners, to come with Jesus as the guest of honor. We just kind of skip over that sometimes. But he did this not to buy salvation. He did this in response to the great gift of his soul salvation that he received from Jesus. It was a response to the goodness of God in Jesus. Nothing is worth that. Nothing on earth. What's more important is the eternal destiny of the souls of those who I called my friends and colleagues and that I knew. And let's have a banquet and Jesus come and tell them who you are, like you told me. There's another fellow that meets us in the next chapter. Luke chapter 19. I think it's so interesting that, <laughs> that this Luke chapter 19 follows with the story of Zacchaeus' salvation and of the parable of the minas. And this, again, comes to us in terms of gospel good works. What did Zacchaeus do? It was a response to being visited by God's grace and salvation. And so you see, that's what Jesus was saying to this, this rich ruler. You see where your treasure is? You see what you're holding on to? No, you can't buy salvation. And this is not a mandate taken out of context for you know, social good works. This is about the response that is demonstrated from God's gracious salvation. I think the struggle here that is demonstrated by this rich ruler, he was very sorrowful because he was so wealthy. And elsewhere in Matthew we're told Jesus had compassion on him. I think it's well described by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. Is the law sin? As Jesus presses him with the second table of the law, and if you fail in the second table of the law, what hope do you have of the first table of the law? Remember the logical uh, method of from lesser to greater that's pressed upon the conscience? And Paul says, is the law sin then? Certainly not. On the contrary. I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. I believe that was what was killing this rich ruler. He went away sorrowful. His heart was pierced. He was broken because he had great possessions and he just couldn't let go of them because that's where his treasure was and his heart was fixed on him. And it was killing him. And so how does Paul end? Therefore, I think this is quite unexpected. Therefore, the law is holy. 
We think, oh, that's not good to be put in that kind of condition, to be broken up that way, to be distressed, to, to, to come to the grief of, this is killing me. How can that be good? Paul says, yeah, the law is holy. That's a good work of the law. And the commandment is just and good because it drives us to God's mercy. It drives us that we cannot save ourselves no matter how good we try to be to others. We need to see that very clear line of distinction between the gospel of the kingdom, the new covenant good news of of mercy triumphing over judgment, And to have a clear, established understanding of where that does not get entangled into social good works in reference to salvation. That's what I'm saying. If you're saying, well, that's clear enough, well, then that's a good place. That's the right place to start. And what I think is very interesting as we go on into chapter 19 of of Luke Remember what Jesus said uh, to his disciples here when they said, who can be saved then? Jesus said, it's harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God to go to heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. And his disciples say, well, who can be saved? They felt felt the pinch of that. And Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And then the very next chapter, 19, demonstrates what is possible with God, with Zacchaeus, and the parable of the minas, which, as I said, we'll turn to next time. So here's something I want you to consider. There are multiple uses and benefits of the moral law of God, but they are not all of equal effect. And the first table of the moral law, the commandments 1 through 4 that we refer to as the first table of the law, summarizing the absolute sovereignty of Creator God and universal accountability to him. When it's a, the, the summary of that is that we're to love God supremely with all that we are. We're to make no idols. We're not to take his name in vain. We're to, uh, to recognize devotion to him in the original creation Sabbath that's been replaced by the new covenant promise of a greater Sabbath. And I believe that in, in the first table of the law, what is demonstrated of our loving God supremely is in worshiping Him according to Scripture. That's how we demonstrate love for God. And others jump to the second table of the law. Oh, you you show your love for God by doing this, doing that. No. We first and foremost demonstrate that we have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love, armored with light, entering the light, walking in the light, worshiping in the light. We worship God first according to his will. That's the first table of the law. And we've been transferred and we have a changed relationship to God in terms of how we worship him. That's the outworking of our heart's devotion. And that first table of the law stands as an indictment from the covenant of works on all humanity. They cannot worship God apart from Jesus Christ in an acceptable way. They have to have the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ to come to the Father. He is, in His incarnation, the transcending veil. We only come to the Father through the Son. 
Often and repeated in Scripture, this is emphasized and, and preached and declared over and over and over again. And what is what, what should not be missed is that the applications of the second table of the law also demonstrate to us one of two things. If we are not sinless in relationship to others, where do we stand before God? And if we have been made right with God through Jesus Christ, accepted and have a changed relationship to God and, and His worship, then we look to the Scriptures to see that He directs us through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit with a good conscience to seek to follow the second table in a way of love and charity and kindness and mercy. Not pretending perfection, but believing in the sanctifying presence of God that He will even use our gospel good works to praise His name. So, the law of God, the moral law of God, remains a binding authority from the original covenant of works on all humanity. They are guilty before God. And all humanity is compounded in their guilt of sin witnessed by their their failures of the second table of the moral law. And that irrepressibly, this is what Paul says, that irrepressibly leads to either excusing or accusing or begging for the need for the covenant of grace. And, And that's powerful. That's why the kingdom of God and understanding it in relationship to the covenant of works and the covenant of grace and the moral law of God and its application is so valuable and important to us. It's looking beyond us individually. It's looking to what God has sanctified and appointed for how we bear witness to the kingdom. How we preach the kingdom of God. So while not getting into the specifics about the Christian or the church's relationship and involvement with secular culture, I know those are questions that continue. And the, we're interested in. But I want you to see how we're building up here. The purpose of these several messages about the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world If you remember back in Daniel, the twofold kingdom of God is revealed and unique. That's the place to start from what Scripture tells us and our understanding that the kingdom of God is is revealed and it's unique, it's different. It's not like the kingdoms of the world. That's the place to start concerning the kingdom of God and good works. Regarding the covenant of works, there are creation ordinances and mandates in this secular world. They're still binding as we bear witness to them. Regarding the the, uh, kingdom of God and social good works, not being the new covenant gospel we talked about this morning, we get even more specific with the first and second tables of the moral law, biblically expounded in application of the covenant of works or the covenant of grace. 
And then, as I told you, we're going to go next time to Luke 19, to the kingdom of God and gospel good works. How would you explain that? Or what are your thoughts on that? What are gospel good works? We have some very direct scriptures and applications and elaborations of scripture. It might be interesting to you, just take a study of the New Testament scriptures and the epistle literature particularly of where the second table of the law is enumerated and in what context. That's a very useful study. So these several messages have been intended to lay a good foundation for building up a sanctified conversation informed by expounding and exploring Scripture and not being dogmatic beyond Scripture. What I hope next time in Luke 19 is to show you in response to the grace of God and His salvation and in explanation of the parable of the minas. We're, giving a, we're given a perspective on how we're to understand gospel good works. So perhaps you'd like to be reading chapter 19 of um, the Gospel of Luke. And then I would also encourage you with a, a, a very useful study. Look at references in the New Testament, particularly in the epistle literature, not limited to that because we've already referenced several in the gospel literature, but in the, in the epistle literature, look and see where there are references in the context of the second table of the law, for example. And, and what do you make of that? Well, that helps us as we seek better to understand the kingdom of God and particularly in relationship to so much that is disputed about where we as individual believers or the church collectively interact with the secular culture. One of the things that is important for us demonstrating the difference of the kingdom of God from the kingdoms of the world and um, that, are, that are not the application of um, social good works and that sets the church apart in terms of being the kingdom of God and the ordinances of, of Christ and the mysteries of the kingdom of God revealed to us in the sacraments. This is what we have the world doesn't have. 